of practicing skillfully. Louder? (laughs) Shall I say the title again? The Dharma Dance, Balancing on the Many Fine Lines of Practicing Skillfully. Almost all of what we do becomes a dance. The more we do it, the more elegant the dance. And uh, it's this dynamic, living dancing that I'm talking about. First I'll say that to balance is an activity rather than an achievement. Do you remember in the very beginning of the retreat, years ago, when at one point I asked you to stand up and just to stand, and at some point I said stand completely still, and you couldn't, because there's no such thing as getting there and being still. It's this constant, even sometimes incredibly subtle, adjusting. And you could see that your body, even, was all the time, little tiny regulations, little liftings of the kneecap, and a little relaxing of something somewhere. And uh, practicing is this dynamic. There isn't that we get it, and we get there, and then that's it, now we know. There isn't a right Therefore, of course, there isn't a wrong way. It's, there isn't a right way to dance. When we aren't dancing to get somewhere or to do it, you know, to get from one side or the other, one side of the room to the other, it's experiencing itself. But, with, but the point of all of this, of course, we remember, I hope we remember, is to move from a state of stress, confinement, busyness, the small sense of me into a sense of ease, expansion, clarity, calm, well-being, peace, happiness, kindness, etc. All those beautiful words. And those describe a state of being, a momentary, momentary state of being because it's always shifting and changing because it's dynamic, just like trying to stand still. And any one moment we can be somewhat easy, spacious, clear, with a little bit of gritching going on. Another moment we can be completely oppressed and struggling with no ease and clarity at all. Another moment we can have, completely goes quiet, spacious, and so on. So it's a, it's a, a living, moving, experiencing A way, there's different ways of describing this, all these different words we use. Um, when we are in a state of grace or a state of happiness or freedom, it's called wholesome. Kusala, K U S A L A. And when we're in any degree of not that, it's akusala, A before that, kusala. Unwholesome, caught, struggling, worrying, and so on. And the experience, another way of describing the state of the unwholesome, which is for us normal, <laughs> so it is most of the time for us, a lot of the time, is um, that we are caught in greed, hatred, or delusion. Sometimes all three, often two. 
greed, hatred and delusion. These are the ways we relate to our experience from an unwholesome place when we're not at ease. And when we are at ease, when we are free of stress in any moment, we are not wanting, we have no resistance or negativity towards, and we are not deluded, we actually know what's happening. So I want to just mention a little bit more about this delusion one. The greed, desire, wanting, leaning into, chasing, I'm sure we all know extremely well. The other, that resistant, that is either, as one of my colleagues has said on this retreat, it's, it's either the pushing aggressively against, negatively, or it's the afraid of and shrinking from, both of which are just different expressions of aversion, not okayness, wishing it were other. Delusion, delusion is what happens so much of the time I'm blurring my talk into the others' talks, but when the temple talked all about Vedna, Vedna being the experience that we, the flavor we experience of any moment, every moment, of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, in any moments of experience. The first two, of course, is where greed and hatred arise the neutral or the not particularly pleasant and optically unpleasant experiences, which are so many, we don't notice. This is what delusion means. We just do not pay any attention. It's nothing to us. We miss completely. We dismiss, sometimes deliberately. That person doesn't mean a thing to me. I don't like them. I don't not like them. They're not even noticing me. I'm not even noticing them. They don't count people, experiences all through the day. You come in and report to us, what do we mostly report? We mostly report greed and hatred. Mostly we report when it's pleasant and when it's not pleasant, if there is wanting or if there isn't wanting. Very few of you talk about ordinary neutral things. They're not worthy of reporting. Unremarkable. So just pairing in mind that an enormous amount of our lives are deluded in the way that we actually are only relating to the squeaky wheels, the ups and the downs. Another meaning of delusion is misseeing, not just not seeing, but misseeing, seeing, interpreting incorrectly, which we do, for instance, we interpret something as important and significant when it isn't. We interpret something as beautiful when it isn't, it's just that we like it. We interpret something as awful, often people, when they're not, it's just that we don't like them. We misperceive. This is also delusion. Not perceiving and misperceiving. Learning the Dharma dance is to bring us out of these three coverings or defilements, poisons, call them what you like, where we are not at ease, where we're not free. We notice things and then how, whether we like them or we don't like them. This is just a little extra thing, but you know when we go out at night, we've had these amazing clear nights every day for so many days. We go out, the sky is clear, we look up, and what do we see? 
our minds, watch your minds, it goes to that bright thing there, that, there's Orion over there, there's the Big Dipper, I call it, the plow over there, therefore there's the North Star, my home's that way. The moon in its different phases. We don't, we just glom, the attention gloms onto the things. It's the way the mind works. They are benign, they're up there, they're not coming to get you. We don't have to get into greed and hatred around them. We don't. They're just there they are. There's a certain loving of them or enjoying of them or expanding around them, but we're noticing stars, not sky. We notice things, not space. We notice noise, not quiet. We notice pains, not comfort. We notice the people we like and the people we don't like and we don't notice all the rest of them. We focus on particulars. It's the way we're wired. It's the way we've survived. It's, it's fine. But it's interesting to think that our life is made up about the, zo- the, the zoning in on or the glomming onto the particular things, particularly the, the ones that are pleasant and particularly the ones that are unpleasant. And we make our life around that. It's just the way we're wired. But it's a very limited way because what about all that space that we're missing and all those things that we're not perceiving? And furthermore, it isn't just that we notice things, we build our well-being on them. When we have not too many of those we don't like and sufficient number of those we do like, we're called happy. And if it goes in the other way, we get not enough of the things we want and too many of the other things, we're bummed. We depend on these things in our untrained way. We are at the mercy of them, therefore. And we spend our time trying to rearrange them so that they won't, we don't have enough of the problem ones, we have more of the other ones. That's our experience. And we are seeing this. And the players and the, and the circumstances and the bits and pieces that have come into our awareness which, with these qualities, they are the, the designers almost of our, our well-being. But that's a very, I think it was a weak state, I think that's what the word that Temple described. It's a very vulnerable not a strong, independent state. Freedom is freedom from that influence. Being able to have all of these things which will happen, some of which we can rearrange to suit us some of the time, briefly usually, but being okay anyway. So uncoupling or unhooking our well-being from the change and the rise and fall of circumstance. So... But I want to talk about, just to sort of remind us of what we're doing, I want to talk about the actual act of balancing that this meditation does for us. Because it isn't as simple as right or wrong, or do this right, or get this sorted out. It's, it's way more um, organic, and way more individual, and way more momentary, and way more flexible than we often think it is. So a a few things, and I'll come back and go through them in a little more depth, but for instance, how do we balance our personal requirements? We're hungry, our knee hurts, we're tired with meditating. There are two things there to deal with, and we have to deal with them both, and which one is dominating which, and how do we balance them? For instance, um, how do we balance being interested in what's going on 
and the mind that tends to analyze and explain and get into thinking. Is interest thinking? How much of it's thinking? Is thinking okay? What kind of thinking? How much? We have to balance around that one. I'll go over these and talk a bit more. Um, the whole thing of um, doing and not doing. Effort. How much effort is enough effort? When is too little effort? When is too much? When is just the right amount? Is there such a thing as just the right amount? And so on. Um, um, being being kind. The whole practices of metta are enormous. There's a lot one can talk about. I won't talk about them in great depth tonight. Maybe another talk. But there is caring. And then there is, how does that shift when there's pain? It becomes karuna. Then how does karuna not get too depressing? And when do we actually need a little joy to balance it so that it's joy? When does joy get too joyful and become exuberant and we need a little karuna to remember that it's not always going to be great? This is going to pass. The the influence of these four on each other to make a, a state of kindness and friendliness realistic, appropriate for all the changing circumstances. That's a huge balancing act, just that one practice. It's not just do metta, you know, as I'm sure you're discovering. The factors of awakening, which I talked about the last time I talked with you, um, three of the factors being factors which bring energy up and three which bring energy down and how to adjust them and when to bring energy up and when to bring it down and how and how to recognize which. That's a lot of what we're doing. So, we learn these skills by trial and error, as I said the other morning, I think. Um, and mostly by error. We learn by, that was too much, <laughs> that was definitely not enough. And so we, we, we lose our clarity, our centeredness, our mindfulness. And then we realize, oh, that, I need to do something different, I need to adjust again. We learn from that, that's how we learn. So we um, first remember that we were, it's really useful to keep saying, what is bringing me a sense of freedom and ease, or what is giving me a sense of stress and confinement and pressure? To keep always checking in. Question, is it wholesome, is it unwholesome? Leading to well-being or leading away from it? That sort of a constant reference. And then we learn the various techniques, we practice them, we spend a bit of time doing this one and this one, and we've offered you all kinds, a whole range of ways to do that. And what happens as you keep practicing and you learn these skills is they go from being skills and techniques to becoming uh, integrated. And as they become integrated, it's more and more natural for you when you, for instance, feel upset with yourself, for your meta self to come in and go, oh, there, there, dear, you're doing the best you can, it's okay. Rather than thinking now then, what's the meta response to this? What should I do here? The practicing over and over of bringing kindness when you're upset, sooner or later, you realize is soothing. And so gradually that remembering to do it that way becomes incorporated in you, becomes more natural, more spontaneous, and becomes, therefore, um, a skill, an embedded skill, which is what we mean by wisdom. And so we become wise by the learning, by the practicing. 
we're able to use the tools, use the skills without having to wonder and, and struggle with them. We just know this is a situation, this is a, a tool that will help this. This will probably be useful now. I'll adjust by doing this or noticing this or being more interested in this and so on. Wholesome and unwholesome states, the state of well-being and and relative freedom compared to relative court is described in so many different ways. This is the heart of the thing. There are many ways. One way I like to use, because I find it just so easily, easy to relate to when we're in the middle of our life, when we're in the middle of a sitting here, is the small mind and the big mind. The small mind, so what I think of is just me, just the regular, normal, little me, going about my business, Heather, with my possessions and my friends and my problems <coughs> and my dreams. It's the untrained, normal, little point of view. It's a small point of view in which I am in the middle of the center of the stage. In fact, the universe and everything is radiating out from me. And the things which I like and the things which I don't are close to me and the rest of them are further and further away and I don't even bother with those. So that's the kind of normal view. Small mind. And that mind, the one that keeps us fed and housed, um, is extremely busy all the time trying to get more of the pleasant things and less of the unpleasant things, right? It's busy, that one, that little mind. The big mind is the mind which um, is present when we're mindful. It's the part of us that can sort of, and for all of us we experience it differently. For me, it's like it's bigger. It can see, it's an overview position. It can see the little mind and what it's doing. It can see the little me getting irritated or the little me being content. It's, the, it's, a, it's a bigger view. Some people call it a higher mind, a mind that's above looking down on the little mind and the little one and all of her stuff. Some people think of it as a mind that's back from the witness position back. Sometimes I call it being on the, on the couch <clears throat> compared to being in the TV which is the little one who's in there with it, with all the things that are happening and completely into it all and excited if it's a thriller and laughing if it's a comedy and crying if it's Bambi, in my case, whatever. <laughs> the, the overview or the bigger mind knows what's happening. It's a movie. It's a movie called Bambi, Heather, for heaven's sake. Like a, <laughs> right. It gives the broader perspective. It's mindfulness. It's the knower, knowing what's happening. This is the uh, free from being caught in loving or hating, greed or hatred or delusion of the small mind. It's an extracting, it's an expanding, bigger than. When we're in the small, we are identified with what's happening. You've heard all these words. We are usually not just caught by, but we're very involved in what's going on in our minds and our hearts. We're involved. Utejaniya, Sayadaw Utejaniya uses this word a lot, to be involved. And you know when you're sitting quietly attempting to be present, and your mind is 
in some little something. It's in some little TV or some little drama and it's that's getting caught up, entangled. So involved is one way. Whereas the large mind, the big mind, the wise mind isn't involved. It can see a situation, but it doesn't get caught in the whole ongoing, the train, we call them thought trains. Another way of thinking of the little mind and what it's like for you, for us, all of us, is um, when we are caught in something, involved in something, it is running the show. If we're worried about something, worrying is what's going on and the thing we're worrying about is, is making us, we think, worry. It's the problem. It's, it's about it. It's about this worrisome, whatever the thing is. We aren't running the show. We don't mean to be doing it. We don't even want to be doing it. We don't know that we're doing it often, or certainly how we got into doing it, or when it happened. But worrying is dominating us. It's, a, it's oppressive. We are underneath the worrying. Whereas the big mind is on top of it, seeing, oh, here's worrying. Not oppressed by, possessed by, run by. <clears throat> squashed by, trapped by, caught in worrying. Worrying will come, (coughs) can be seen, can be allowed, can be felt. But the big mind is bigger than it. So another way that I would describe the experience of being in a bigger state of mind, the bigger mind, more aware, bigger point of view, is a capacity. It's a holding of the small. Mindfulness is bigger than what it's mindful of. A capacity can hold the coming and going of pleasant and unpleasant things, of thoughts, of sounds, of changing circumstances. Mindfulness is this capacity, this holding tank, this capacity to... uh, And hold, I like the word hold, because when you hold, you don't grab, you know, you don't drop. When you hold something, there's a kind of careful appropriateness to the word hold. I like that word to hold. How are you holding this today? I think of holding babies or holding bags of food. There's a you know, you don't crush it to death. <laughs> you don't just let it fall around and loll around. There's a, a, t- a tenderness and a consciousness. And I think that the big mind holds what's going on inside. It doesn't push away. It doesn't pull towards. It doesn't dismiss. It can hold. When we're in that big mind. A way the Buddha described this is right view, samaditi, view, D-I-T-T-H-I, ditti, D-H-I-T-T-I, I put the H in the wrong place, ditti, sama is true, true view or right view. The small view, the small point of view, the little me is sakaya ditti, personalities, S-A-K-K-A-Y-A, sakaya ditti personality view, small view, my point of view, me in the middle, the grand poobah.
So as we practice, we discover that we're increasingly in the big view. And it's only from the big view and the practices that support it that we can balance. We can come to balance all these other things. We are unable to balance and become out of balance when we don't have the skills that we're learning. So we get too caught in uh, work, for instance, uh, trying, trying to be good. Some people here are strivey personalities. I won't ask you to put your hands up, but we all know who we are. And when we over-try with meditation, we learn because various side effects start happening. We start getting headaches, we start getting tight around the jaw, we have thoughts of not good enough, we have frustrations, we have judgments, you know, we have, sometimes we hit the wall and we just give up and we have a lot of doubt that it's not doable. These are the side effects of over-trying. If we were to be in our big mind a little more mindful, we would notice them sooner. And we would say, this is overdoing it. This is too much. Let's just relax a little here. Let's just settle down and, is this going to be enough? Can this be enough, just being here in this body? Do I have to try and get more, get something to be goal-oriented? The strive is a goal-oriented. But then there's the other side of it, if we don't have enough striving and we're like, this is just cruisy and beautiful and, and so having such a great time here and it's easy and, and we could be like falling asleep and getting off in fantasies for half an hour at a time and, because there isn't enough energy and then we get spaced out or things get flat, sometimes we get a sense that everything's really flat. There's no energy Without mindfulness, we just think, oh, I, I'm, I'm just not very good at this. You know, this, is, this isn't definitely working. I need some other practice. You know, what shall I do? Come to us saying, can you give us something different to do? This isn't working. <laughs> la, la, land. In their extremes, they become hindrances. When we, when we try too much, we stir ourselves up and we get into a state called restlessness, one of the hindrances. Agitated, restless, squirmy, don't know, can't settle. Until we realize we're like that, there's nothing we can do about it. We're just caught in it. As soon as the big mind comes in, as soon as we have some state of, oh, this is a hindrance called restlessness. First we recognize it, we've already talked about that. even just realizing it, we go, oh, what a relief, it's restlessness. It isn't that things aren't okay and I'm not okay and this isn't working, it's restlessness. Oh, that's what that, already we're relaxed a bit. And then we realize, oh, I need to just calm down here. I need to expand, become a little bigger. I need to get more of a, one of the other things I describe, which is what I do, is I zoom out. I literally do like Google Earth and I zoom out. And then I see, oh, it's not just me and my little things I'm struggling with here. It's like, oh, look, restlessness is here. It's okay, Heather. It's going to pass. It's just, it's a hindrance. It's a visitor. has come by visiting you. And in that bigger space, then I can decide, oh, yeah, look, I can feel my jaws got tight. I can soften my, my face. I can adjust my neck, check my shoulders. That energy release... It's a lot, lot of different skillful ways that you know. You can ease, you, unless, unless you know it, until you know it, you're just in it. 
it's got you. Zooming in, zooming out. Um, Another thing to um, be conscious of, which is, uh, these are just different ways of of doing all of this um, balancing, this dance, different pieces of the dance. Um, The hindrances. Lots of people ask this question, surely there must be a certain amount of desire that's wholesome. I desire to come on retreat. You know, I desire to take the eight precepts. I desired, I desire to be happy. That surely isn't a problem. So the hindrances aren't, it isn't black, none of this is black and white, it's a fine line. So somewhere on this line, there's wholesome desire. There's desire to be kind, there's desire to be friendly, desire to be honest. Wholesome, beautiful desires and wishes. To feel a sense of ease. There's intention. This morning Sally was talking about intention. There's a certain desire in that. To see that. It's wholesome. But but if we become small-minded about it, in other words, we make the thing we want and the pleasure of the thing we want so significant that we must have it, we're clinging to it, we must have it, we're depending on it, suddenly... We're in small mind. Suddenly we're, we're trapped by this desire. We have to have the desire. When we spend so much energy trying to get it, or as soon as we get it, it's going to disappear. We're going to be bummed out. If we can't get it, we're going to be bummed out. When it changes or moves or leaves, we're going to be bummed out because we're relying on it. That's too small. So then that's when then it becomes a hindrance. Not okay unless we get it. We're not okay then. But having it from a big mind point of view, a wholesome desire, desire to be kind, we're not trapped by it. We're bigger than it. We just recognize, oh, this is lovely, this desire to be friendly or kind. Same thing with aversion. We need a certain wholesome degree of aversion. It's not okay to fight. I don't want to fight with you. I don't like fighting with you. I don't want to get caught and judge you or me. We need that ability to discern wisely what is and what isn't useful, helpful, valuable, kind. But when it gets so too big, it isn't it's like the the this wanting this aversion in this case, it seems to get big because we get small, the mind gets small. And then the problem gets big. If we can stay big, then a degree of aversion stays small and manageable. It's like, how much can you hold aversion and stay mindful? Or how much have you forgotten and now aversion has got dominating you and got bigger than you? And you're now in it and it's now oppressing you. Somebody in one retreat I taught once said, I get it. He said, it's about seniority. Either I've got seniority over what I'm thinking and my thoughts and feelings, or they have seniority over me. And it's about big and small. If your mind is larger, you, this big mind, can discern and choose and, and balance and dance. If it's small, then here comes a worry. Here comes some aversion. We're being crushed by it, oppressed by it. It has seniority. So in any moment you can say, you know, like you're having a feeling or a thought or an emotion, is it running you or are you running it? And we've been learning and I've been with quite a number of you and say an emotion comes and washes through 
it could and often would have and may well again completely over, overrun you. But even with a strong emotion, it's possible to maintain a big space around it. Your feet are on the ground, you're breathing, you're present, you care, you're caring about yourself, you're not getting into war with this thing, you're not now afraid of this thing. You have a bigger capacity. You can now hold this visiting. Even big, big emotions can move through. You're learning to become big, bigger than it, rather than the other way around. Life going on in the hills. So, wanting is a continuum. Some of wanting is wholesome, some of wanting can get into the territory of being unwholesome, then it's a hindrance. It isn't just a hindrance. A certain amount of restlessness doesn't have to be a hindrance, except that if it gets too much, it's oppressing you, now it's a hindrance. It's not allowing you to become steady and settled. But sometimes we can be fairly settled and still have a lot of agitated energy. It doesn't have to be a hindrance. Same with the hindrance doubt. And all the hindrances. I'll, I'll, I'll go to sloth next because doubt I like to do last. When we're slothful or dull, if we maintain awareness and we can stay big enough to realize this is what's going on, I'm really sleepy, it's really comfortable. I like being sleepy because then I'm relaxed and I'm comfortable and the place is safe around me. I'm not worrying about anything or anyone or I would, wouldn't be so relaxed. I'm feeling dull and comfy and warm, then we're still maintaining seniority. We still have big enough awareness to be bigger than the particular visitor. It's when it takes over and we're gone and we're drifting and we don't know where we are and nodding and in la-la land. It's become a hindrance. It's running the show now. The same thing with doubt. A certain amount of doubting means a certain amount of skepticism. Not just assuming that this is how it is, but like, I wonder what's going on. It's useful to have a certain curiosity in our minds. We're not trying to like know everything and now we've got it all together and there's no more doubt. Doubting is actually healthy to a degree. Is this what I think it is? What's going on here? Not completely sure, so I'm interested a bit. There would be no interest. If there were no doubt at all, there would be no interest. We'd say, oh, this is how it is. Closed book. But when there's a certain amount of doubt, it's like, what is, what is this? What's, what's hap- what does this feel like? We're not quite sure, so we get a little closer to it. We're in- engaged. But when doubt gets too big, it's getting seniority over us, and then it's like, I don't know, I don't, this is hopeless. I I'm never going to be it. No, no, no. And we, we're believing in it. Doubt is very tricky because doubt of all the hindrances is the most convincing. It sounds really clever. It feels like it's like, yeah, I don't think this is a good idea. My wisdom here is telling me maybe I shouldn't be so naive. You know, it easily can trick us. The others aren't so tricky. They're a little more obvious. But doubt's really sneaky. But it's a, it, just to give you some reassurance because it's a, the hardest one to catch because of that and it's also very very subtle whereas we usually can tell some degree when we're wanting we can usually tell to some degree when there's some aversion it's more easy to recognize we can feel restlessness we can feel dullness doubt's hard to feel as a feeling it's hard to feel the energy of doubt 
<coughs> it's very pervasive. So some of the ways, let me see, I'll go through some of those, to how we can bring a balance to them. When we feel, I'll um, go through those. When we're wanting something, the big mind can say, oh, wanting. It can also, what's that feel like? It feels like off balance. It feels like I'm leaning into. It feels like I'm pushing. It feels like I'm ahead of myself. I'm looking for the goal somewhere. I'm trying to get something. That's what it feels like. That's just realizing it, first of all. So from that, when we really realize we're doing that, we come back into being more upright. The big mind can say, there isn't a future, it's just this moment. In this moment, I'm either satisfied or not. If I'm leaning ahead into another moment, then obviously I'm missing that this moment's enough. It's just this moment, come back here. And it can also reflect, the big mind can just go like, that feeling of inadequacy is actually a very unpleasant feeling. I can feel that. I'm not happy right now because I want something else. The big mind can see that and feel that and say, it's going to change. It's not in that thing. You know when you get that thing, then it'll be fine for a few minutes and then it'll be gone and it'll have to be another. Like ice cream and chocolate and things. They're over so quickly. The big mind knows that, will tell you that. When it's aversion, and we're in a state of aversion, when there's a big mind, it can do the same thing. It can go, oh, that feels, yeah, there's that pushing feeling, that struggling feeling, oh, that's such an unpleasant feeling. I'm just so dissatisfied with what's here right now. Oh yes, I can just feel this. Here it is, it's a visitor, it's going to change, it's a hindrance. I like the word visitor. I didn't invite it. But I've got to be a good, a good host to my visitors. I don't slam the door in their face. I don't say, no, not today, thank you. I go, oh, welcome. Like Rumi and his guest house. Smile, welcome them. Oh, here's agitation again. Oh, here is resistance. That's what's here. And it feels like this. Can we bring some kindness? The big mind isn't just big, it's kind. Can I be a little bit can I hold this with some tenderness? This is a feeling of resistance. Hmm, can I be kind to myself? When it's difficult, kindness becomes compassionate. It's like, oh, this is so hard to be struggling against like this, to wish it weren't this way. It's compassionate, sympathetic, empathetic. With restlessness, we need to calm down and soothe and relax. Just relax, relax, relax. With sleepiness, sloth, torpor, we need to be more energized. We need to be more curious. We need to bring the energy up. The best way to bring dull energy up is with interest. Be curious. Be curious about something, anything. We need to be more engaged. We're just we're slipping off. We're slipping off anything. Nothing holds our attention. How can you be interested? 
You can ask questions, that's how you can be interested. What's this feel like? What's going on now? Ask, there's lots of different questions you can ask. You know, what hindrances are present right now? What factors would I really like to feel right now? Would I, what, what would I like? Some space? Would I like some lightness? Would I like some energy? What does that feel like? Stir up some interest. Sometimes you can get closer to something and then it gets more interesting. Sometimes you need to be expansive and shift to the open awareness that guide, guy guided you through yesterday. Do some hearing. That's different. That's interesting. Change the focus. One of the difficulties that happens when we're concentrating and the minds get quiet and we get, we're able to stay for longer times. And if we're using the breath particularly, it's so soothing like a lullaby and it's beautiful that we can be that relaxed and soothed but the downside of it is it can just lull us and then half an hour later when the blood sugar is going down after breakfast it's like <laughs> we go into sloth and so to notice that that's what's happening calm, peaceful it can get too too not enough of an energy when I told you the last time I talked to you about the factors of awakening, the first factor being mindfulness, which is we have to have mindfulness, the, then the three energizing factors, to be interested, to persist with your energy, and a certain sense of delight, joy, happiness, enthusiasm. This is neat. And then the three on the other side are the calming three, calm or serenity, concentration, one-pointedness, collectedness, unified attention, and equanimity. And they are, think of them as just one, glo- one sort of factor energizing and one factor calming. They are separate, but you can just see them as sort of more or less one package. If you're predominantly calm, you're, gonna, you're at risk to become into the hindrance arena of sloth. If you're predominantly interested and energetic and applying yourself and persistent and enthusiastic, you can run the risk of getting too agitated. And you can see inside yourself, is your mind trying enough that you're getting agitated? Or just enough to be interested and steady and happy and clear and bright with no agitation? Where are you getting into the field of agitation? And with the calming three, are you calm, relaxed, content, steady, peaceful? And are you learning, leaning into the territory of becoming dull? And so by being mindful, by being curious, you'll be able to feel the energies and as they come and as they go. And it may be sustained for quite a long time. And then it'll begin to either sink or begin to get tight. Your discomfort will begin to grow and you'll begin to get squirmy again. We need to be realistic. We need to be realistic about like balancing our emotional needs with our big mind. So sometimes the emotional story, our pains, our history, our wounds, the things in our lives immediately that we are engaged with that are needing a lot of attention become really predominant. They can take over. We can be completely caught in our stories, as we say. What we need to do is to have a sense of bigness. Look at this. I'm really, I'm really going, th- I've been going through this all morning. Be big enough to say, 
I'm really caught in these, these feelings. What do they feel like? We need a certain, we need, because we're learning here in the retreat, we aren't here just simply going over our stuff, over and over. We do that all our lives. We're trying to learn these skills that are bigger than, more uh, uh, broader skills, more profound skills than telling the story and feeling the feelings. Those need to be felt, not that they, we shouldn't be doing that. But what we're learning in meditation is this, how to expand the view. So we need to be realistic. I'm tired right now. Or I'm really grieving right now. I need to feed myself. I need to rest enough. I need to be kind enough to my body. And addressing that with care, we also need to put then a fair amount of our attention into being mindful, being calm, being spacious, looking out the window so that it's not just me and my drama. I'm in the, down in my rabbit hole, as some people call it, you know, down in my well. It's like, I can hold this. Can I have enough big view to hold this? This is difficult. This is sadness. This is worry. The big mindfulness that knows it. So I want to talk about then these pieces which are the skills we build that help keep the view broad. Of course, the very first one and the very main one is mindfulness. It's what mindfulness is. It's a bigger view. Sati, bigger than what it's mindful of, able to hold. Another one, and I think this one, we need to have this red, these we have to, all of these are the skills to be able to do this. So this one too, absolutely we need, I put it right at the top of the list with mindfulness is metta. We need a heart in this, we need to care. We need to care about wanting to be free, about wanting to feel expanded and not contracted. We do this because we love ourselves. You don't come here for any other reason than some deep, deep honoring of yourself. Even if you think you forgot that's why you came. and <laughs> It's underneath all of the reasons for coming is the deepest sacred love of ourselves. Remember that. We have to keep remembering that. And when whatever happens, it's like, it's okay, I'm doing the best I can. We need to meet ourselves and our experiences in a friendly way. Mindfulness isn't really mindful if it doesn't have its heart. If it isn't really because it's caring about it. It's not just checking it off and registering it and recognizing. It's not a mental thing, in other words. It's a whole being thing. Mind and heart. Not just mind. We really need the, the, the awakening factor of being interested. Being interested, and being interested is like, and this needs to become a regular piece of wisdom. It's an attitude that's curious. It's like, what's happening now? We need that not just as a thing to do occasionally, but to actually incorporate an, a whole way of being that's kind, that's, that's knowing what's happening, period, because it cares, that's curious. It's like this, what, this fascination, that little question mark you see in the eyes of children. They aren't just like light, they're also like, what, what's that, what's that? They're engaged, there's a cu- curiosity. We need that. We need to engage that and develop that and eventually have that so integrated that any moment that's going on, we're like, what's happening with this? 
It's not busy, it's not trying to get answers, it's not definitely fixing, but it's this engaged wondering, wondering. That's a really vital piece. And it's that that keeps us able to, what's going on? And then be able to discover things, see more clearly, motivated by this. Another, these are a couple of really other, virya, of course, which is that persistent, keep on doing it. We need to learn and hone the skill of not overdoing and not underdoing, not getting too tight and getting too loose, but in between. That How to be gently persistent, and that alone is a fantastic skill. Can't, how much can you trust your mindfulness to perceive what's happening without pushing, but holding it there? How, I was talking the other night, that delicate foot, I was talking about Pat Moss, that, that racing car driver. That skill of applying ourselves just enough, not too much, not too little, is for you to spend a long time on that one skill, invaluable skill. That grows over our years of practice. And then these two other pieces, which um, I'll refer to even though um, Temple talked a lot about this one of Vedna I want to mention, and, and another one, a simple one, which Utejaniya talks about a lot, different people do, You've heard me refer to this many times. This, it's a skill. It's a habit. It's a perception. When we go outside and you look up to the sky, we look at the stars. We look at what's happening out there. And we define, I just use that as an example, but we do it with everything. We define our well-being by what's happening. This is the skill. This is your attention. My hand means your attention is going in that direction. This what's happening and how am I with it? And how am I with what's happening? Because if we just focus on what's happening, when it's pleasant we're happy and when it's unpleasant we're unhappy and that's that. We're caught by that. How am I with that? How am I holding that? How am I relating to what's happening? So let whatever's happening remind you to say, and how am I with it? What's going on in here? Because this is where happiness is. It's our attitude. It's not that. When we know we can do that, it is no longer that. Until we can do this, it is all about what happens. So when the good things happen, we're elated. But we're learning this other skill. This is a really essential piece. How am I holding this? How am I relating to this? Am I wanting? Am I pushing? Am I shrinking? Am I chasing? Am I blaming? Am I all of those other things? And as soon as we see those things, we're halfway, more than halfway, to releasing them, that one. And then the thing about Vedna I wanted to say, Vedna, this, it's very interesting, a brilliant teaching, the Buddha was so brilliant, is that when, when we notice a moment that has a, this flavor of pleasant, or unpleasant, or neither, that noticing, that flavor, is a god, it's like it's on God, and it, when it's functioning, catches us before greed, hatred, and delusion happen. That's why it's so brilliant. If we can recognize it's pleasant, and then we can do this, we can say, I'm about to get into wanting it. And if we can recognize it's unpleasant, we can see it's the unpleasant that is going to, if I'm not in my big mind, trigger aversion. 
That's how it's always been. I need to see my response, but we recognize that's what's so clever. The quality of the quality of it, the flavor of it, the pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant quality of it, flavor of it. And then the delusion one, notice this is ordinary, and how am I with that? And how am I with that? And as soon as we start seeing how we are with the ordinary, we discover actually we're way more interested in the ordinary because we're curious people. So if we're curious and we're kind and we're looking at how we are, suddenly life becomes so rich because there's all these millions of ordinary things that we mostly weren't, we didn't have. We didn't have a rich life. We had pleasures and pains, greed and hatred. Now we have all these other things to notice, be interested in, appreciate becomes so much more full, our life becomes so full. The opposite of being depressed, you know, where there's nothing, it's nothing worth it. It's the opposite. Our experiences don't need to define us, and we don't own them. The events of body and mind have no inherent power to imprison us or constrict us. They're just ripples on the surface of a great, silent space. We are extracting ourselves from being over-impacted by what's happening. As we expand, in relative terms, the impact is reduced. As we are contracted, the impact is enormous, elevating or distressing us. As we expand, the impact becomes much less distressing, much more manageable, holdable. We are accommodating what's happening. But we need to grow these skills, mindfulness, interest, kindness, steady persistence, looking at how we are with it, noticing the pleasure, the displeasure, the unpleasantness, the neutrality of things. So the simple instructions that we give you are the tools, the very tools which make this then become a dance rather than a slog free us instead of have us underneath the burdens of all of the rise and fall of life. We say these things in different ways again and again. We hear them over and over as our brains accommodate to these skills and literally the cells grow differently in the brain. But they grow and that takes time like all growing things. They are not switches They're not made, they grow. It's an organic growing. And so over and over and over and over we practice these different skills. And uh, and the momentum builds in us and the benefits cheer us on because it feels, we know what wholesome feels like. We know what freedom feels like. We know what well-being feels like. 
we know what dukkha feels like. So the Dharma, we practice the Dharma and the Dharma expands us and therefore frees us. All we do is develop those skills. We just meditate with these skills. The rest just happens. Magic. Wonderful. Thank you for your attention. I hope this is helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.